This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Death Row Show, and the author is Gary Goes, and Gary joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Gary. Hey, how you doing? Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read your introduction, your statement about your book, just a real short overview of what The Death Row Show is all about. You, re- you wrote... A reality television producer in the future creates a show that makes six death row inmates famous and puts his own life in danger. Well, that uh, sounds like crime and drama and uh, fast and furious. Isn't that right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. So why did you write the book? I, I felt, well, I actually didn't start it until about 2004, but it was after kind of 9-11 terrorism and that kind of stuff. Reality television became really popular. And I just didn't feel that there was not too many novels that dealt with the, the subject of reality television and its, effect, and its effect on society. So there's, there's wasn't, there wasn't, I didn't see many novels that talked about that. So I, I decided to uh, write about it. You say your book appeals to 20- to 4-year-old males who like science fiction, satire, <laughs> sports, music, political incorrectness and who wouldn't normally read a novel so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i know it's uh that's a weird target market but um um i yeah it's definitely not a book for um someone that's easily offended so uh and i i just felt that uh i think a lot of people are sick of uh this formula kind of novel you know what i mean and i just wanted a kind of a raw kind of storytelling kind of thing yeah, you call it raw and in-your-face in storytelling. <laughs> in fact, you admit that you would probably rate your book rated R. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely rated R, yeah. All right, so everything from, I guess, some of the language and some of the scenes in the book. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, the main character is the narrator of the book, Rudy, is it Riker? Riker. Riker. Rudy Riker. Yes. And he's a reality television producer. Now, how did you get into the mind of a TV producer? Is that something you've done? No, no, actually not. Um, uh, to be honest with you, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of reality television, and I, I, I just wanted to kind of maybe spoof the genre and, you know, just kind of tell people uh, that reality television people are just out for ratings and maybe it's not as real as we think. Yeah, they can really make it look real, can't they? <laughs> yeah. With all the special effects today. So tell us about Rudy Riker. Tell us about this reality television producer. Give us a little insight into how he thinks. Well, uh, it's interesting. Um, he's he's uh, he is probably pretty jaded about the whole industry. So he's kind of a guy that actually wants to get out of it, but he's uh, he's about to lose his job because. Uh, one of his shows at the beginning of the book, uh, a guy, a daredevil crashes and he's going to sue the network. So he has to come up with some kind of show that's really uh, um, maybe controversial, violent, whatever, just, just to you know save his job. And uh, he really doesn't think about it too much that it actually could uh, be very dangerous putting uh, you know six uh, 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 row inmates together and filming a show that it might. It might go into his own life, you know, that he might become in danger. And these six uh, death row inmates, you have a terrorist, a mm-hmm. child molester, a serial killer, yeah. a football star, <laughs> yeah. a mob boss, and a homeless criminal. All death row inmates. Yes. So I guess we learn a little bit about each one of them along the way? Right, and I think my main um, main idea was that, that you know, some of these people are exactly, uh, you, you know, they're criminals, and they become they become household names. You know what I mean? When when uh, probably they shouldn't be. 
Right. And, Once and, they get on TV, they become stars. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I thought I thought the most interesting character out of all of them was the homeless guy because uh, most reality shows want want someone cheerful. So he was kind of he picked someone like that because you know he wanted the audience to cheer for uh, you know a victim of circumstances. So that's why he chose him. Now you have another main character. Uh, his name is Otis Clark. Yes. Tell us about Otis. Otis is actually the opposite of Rudy Riker. He's a he's a he's a man that wants to move up in the business, which is totally opposite of Rudy Riker. Um, he's uh, Rudy Riker's best friend from uh, from college, and he he uh, he gets he gets very involved. Especially with the mob boss, and uh, it gets in uh, gambling problems. But uh, it, yeah, he's, he's definitely an opposite kind of character than, than Rudy is. So this book starts out with a was it a motorcycle is going to jump? Mm-hmm. Going to jump twenty SUVs. So, yes. so we jump right into it, don't we? We jump right into it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't fool around. <laughs> And yet, uh, right from the start, you know, there's conflict on right. the set. Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, I forgot. There's another main character. Um, his name's David Schwartz, and he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer for the Daredevil, and he's constantly in the book because uh, television producers probably do get a lot of lawsuits, and and I wanted to put that into the the mix too. So he's there to remind everyone that they could be sued. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there go all the profits. Right. Well, you, uh, there's a couple scenes you've uh, talked about a little bit uh, that we can, without yeah. giving away the, the whole plot. Uh, right. You've got Rudy and Otis, the right. two main characters. They right. end up on the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> Talk about reality television or so well, they say yeah that's the king of them all isn't it? yeah so they say <laughs> i think everybody's getting paid well to fight on tv right and and that was the whole point of it um uh the character uh jerry denial which is the motorcycle daredevil and david schwartz is the lawyer they go on the show with rudy and otis and they basically try to hash it out and it, it, it turns uh it turns pretty ugly <laughs> Just like, just like the show. In another scene, you've got uh, Rudy uh, giving a free beer to a packed house to promote the show, and yeah. things kind of get out of hand. Is that it, what happens? It, it, yeah, um, I, I thought it was it was a pretty funny idea that in order to promote a show, he goes to a bar and puts it, it gives them free beer to actually you know promote the show, and it, it gets out of out of control because. There's a journalist there, and he's he's kind of jotting down what's going on, and the journalist gets in with the gets in with the uh, with the patrons there, and then he goes outside, and then there's protesters protesting him, and he's he's uh, pretty drunk, <laughs> says some stuff he probably doesn't want to, and the journalist is around reporting everything. <laughs> and then you've got the inmates, these death row inmates. Mm-hmm. They they compete in an obstacle course and. <laughs> You know, they of course are armed with knives and also have some pit bulls chasing them. Is that is that kind of set up that wild looking scene yeah, in our I, minds? I, I, well, what I did is um, I got my ideas that you know, from actually the Survivor Show. Um, I, they always have an obstacle course or scavenger hunt and that kind of thing. So I, I thought for them to it just like be that show where whoever won that. That uh, competition would get, uh, they would get breaks. You know, they could walk on the beach, they get good dinners or whatever. So, so I thought, you know, this this thing is important because I I, I was trying to point out that how far these uh, reality shows go, and and uh, this is probably the most extreme, you know, uh, them arms of knives and pit bulls chasing them. <laughs> of course, they like to make us think that everything is just real but as you put it everything is scripted yes exactly um i think the bottom line is that they want ratings and uh, that's it <laughs> that's what pays the bills and 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 they uh they want most of they want 
stuff for their personal selfish agenda, you know. It does it doesn't matter. It, as long as they get the rating, it doesn't matter who gets hurt. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So it sounds like Rudy and Otis, they're they're kind of the good guys, right? Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a strange kind of way. <laughs> yeah, but they're kind of the good guys in your book. Now, there are some bad guys? Yeah, I would say uh, the, the bad guys, well, would be uh, Jerry Denial, the guy that's going after him to sue him, and the lawyer, David Schwartz. But, uh, I, you know, the bad guys is uh, probably the terrorist, which is uh, Abdul Rami. He's, he's the guy that, you know... Um, Everyone in America hates, but uh, Rudy's almost every time he lives through the whole show, uh, <laughs> the ratings become bigger. <laughs> oh sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Everybody wants to see if this terrorist is going to kill somebody, probably. Yeah, right. right, right. Yeah, that's why people watch these shows. Unfortunately, it's the, all the intrigue about people getting hurt or exactly beaten up on each it's, other. It's, uh, it's very uh, reality shows are very mean-spirited if you really look at it. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and and again, as you say, uh, you know, this is about ratings, and mm-hmm. and so the the terrorist, as much as we hate him, he becomes a star because people want to probably tune in to see what is he going to do next. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, you might be onto something. This may be a real-life show sometime. I mean, you may <laughs> actually... You know, somebody's going to read your book, and they're going to create this, and you're not going to get credit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or call it something else. And, <laughs> and, and it's interesting you say that. Uh, actually, when I was writing it, um, there was there was some shows that I put that he actually invented, and, and I found out later. Uh, there was a show I put that he invented called Tree Huggers, and I found out later, like last year or so, there was a show called Axeman or something. And it was it was similar to what I wrote. I go, did somebody read my material? <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? Yeah. Well, it's you know you could be saying, well, great minds think alike. Is that what you were going to take credit for? <laughs> <laughs> well, is there romance in this book? Um, prob- it, it, it's interesting. Um, Rudy Reichter, the main character, is probably a, what we call a womanizer, I guess, but. Uh, his secretary is probably the most he has a relationship with. Um, her name's Julie Bowman, and she's the one that kind of keeps him in line. You know, if he uh, like about the whole book, he gets drunk or whatever, he goes off the handle, and and she's the one that keeps him in line. Well, everybody needs somebody to keep us in line, right? <laughs> so good for Rudy; he's got somebody. Because it sounds like the rest of his life is just out of control. Yes. Definitely out of control. I mean, and he wants to make sure that everything stays out of control because that's how he makes a living. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. You know, it's hard to believe, but uh, well, I don't know if that's the right expression, but yeah. it's you know, when you do look at real life and then you think they're actually creating this stuff, so we'll watch it, so they'll make money. Are we stupid or something? <laughs> <laughs> Getting our yeah. emotions all bent out of shape, and they're the ones that are, you know, they profiting. Yeah, yeah, they're profiting, and our all our emotions get all wrangled. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any other closing thoughts about uh, your book? Well, um, I, I, I was like, like you said before, it's uh, it's to be rated R. Um, it's it's not, you know. It's mostly a male audience who would probably like this, but uh, I, 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 I think it was interesting because I didn't really have any kind of censorship when I wrote this because I was, you know, I was an independent publisher, so uh, I just, I just kind of just let it, let it rip, so we say. So um, if you like that kind of stuff, um, you'll, you'll probably like this book. Well, how do we get your book, Gary? Okay, um, there's there's a couple ways. Um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and AuthorHouse.com sells it online. Uh, also, I'm I'm in the process of, of trying to set up a website, but uh, if you want to just email me at s a t t h at Comcast.net, I could uh, send you a personalized uh, copy, like fifteen dollars. But you will have a, a a website soon. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm in the process of doing okay. that. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sure if somebody Googles the Death Row show, show. they'll find yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. Well, I appreciate you being on Author Talk. Thank you, Gary. All right. Thank you. That was Gary Goes. He is the author of his... I'm going to say your movie. i got to start again. <laughs> that was Gary Goes. He is the author of his book, The Death Row Show. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Minerals, The Rainbow Connection. And the author is Nancy Spirit Song. And Nancy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Nancy. Hello. It's good to talk to you. Well, good to have you here. With you. And we're going to talk, first of all, about your Native American heritage. We want to talk about yeah. that. But I want to first read a couple things from the introduction of your book and also from a foreword that is written by a, is he a relative of named Bull Moose? Yeah, Bull Moose, huh? Okay. Well, anyway, here's, here's a little bit from your introduction. You say, the rock you are drawn to is the rock for you. It will protect and help with focus during meditation. Don't ever doubt the power of our earth. Every natural thing you see is created by a supreme being. Allow the loveliness to awaken your spirit. The brain cells of Mother Earth Rocks will help you to enter and walk the beauty way. Not we bad, would, huh? <laughs> yeah, we would expect some kind of a Mother Earth philosophy from Native Americans, from Indians, uh-huh. and and that was very well said. And and then your your relative named Bull Moose, he said that uh, he's learned many things about life and cures from you. He said he's received many words of wisdom and information, much in the area of healing and comfort from materials and stones such as crystal, which, when cared for properly, bring healing to the natural body, mind, and warmth to our surroundings. So we're going to talk a little bit more about all of this, but first of all, give us some background on your Native American heritage, Nancy. Well, uh, uh, Chief Seed, who, by the way, married me uh, when I got married not too long ago in a Native American ceremony in Tennessee, Sunset Ceremony. He's the uh, head of the Tennessee Native American Indian Council. He's a chief. So uh, what, uh, the Cherokee are the keepers of the Crystal Kingdom. So if you run into somebody and they say they're Cherokee, ask to see their rock in their pocket. If, if they don't have a rock, then they're not Cherokee. The Seneca Indian Nation is the teaching nation, and the Hopis are the peacekeepers and the prophets. You Are you uh, full-blooded Cherokee? No, I'm half. You're part of what's called the Wolf Clan? Yes, that's right. 
What does that mean, being part of the wolf clan? We have uh, totems or guardians, and they're usually an animal or bird form. I come from the wolf clan. It's interesting. I was at the Cherokee uh, Reservation uh, a couple of years ago, and I walked into one of their stores, and uh, the gal that was there said, Oh, you're you're of the wolf clan. You're there, you're guardian. And I said, Yeah, how did you know? She said, Because three of them just walked in the door door with you. I thought that was kind of cool. Hmm. That is. Uh-huh. You say that... Um, Chief Speed is of the bear clan. Okay. We have seven different clans. And they used to have what they call the long hair clan, which is coming back into being, and they, they worked with cats. They kind of disappeared from the scene for a while because people associated cats with witchcraft and where we couldn't be further from that than anything. But they're the healers. And there's a well, lot of healing that goes on, you say, with minerals or rocks and animals. Yes. That's right. I have the same cell structure as a crystal. I have the same cell structure as a tree. We're all one spirit. We all come from the same source. And of course, that's what I believe. I think everybody must find their own way. Right. You know, what works for you. But you talk and, about preparing for a higher consciousness and a new way of thinking. Now, help yeah, us, I'm really help working us at understand it. that. What, what do you mean by that? The higher consciousness? Right. The spirituality. Okay. Uh, just trying to be a better person. We all come to Earth for a reason, a purpose, and you've got to fulfill that purpose. We're all supposed to contribute something, not just take up space. Of course, I came to Earth to be a keeper of the animal kingdom and and the Earth itself. And you have a wildlife refuge. Yes, I do. And, and what wildlife do you have in your refuge? Well, everything is protected here. I basically just have cats and dogs now, but I did have a permit, state and federal permit, to rehabilitate. So I've been bitten by everything. Oh, my people goodness. Say, I, people say, you don't have any children because animals don't talk back. And I said, yes, they do. Would you like to see my scars? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But they're great educators. You learn a lot. I took care of a golden eagle for a while. And she, I learned a lot from her. Her name was Bordiva, and she was an amazing creature, exquisite and beautiful. And uh, one she, time I, did she eventually I had re, I released her. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, that's, that, must, that must have been a hard thing to do to see yes, her leave. Was. She was so gentle, too. Really? One time I was uh, looking at her while I was trying to feed her, and she was watching something go across the sky, and I went and got the, I couldn't see a darn thing. And I went and got the field glasses, and I couldn't, still couldn't see anything. Their eyesight is magnificent. So she saw something in the sky that she thought maybe uh, she'd be interested in, maybe for food yes, or something? Uh-huh. Hmm. She was most interested in something I couldn't see. You couldn't see it, but she <laughs> knew it was there. Uh-huh, yeah, that's true. Well, you're also a very active member of the National Audubon Society. I was. I was a fa- one of the founders and the president for more times than I would like to, to to say, and I put out the newsletter. I used to write a column for five different, a weekly column for five different newspaper, newspapers, and I put out a uh, wildlife refuge newsletter, which went all over the, all over the world. So I've worn out about five uh, typewriters. Now you talk about medicine women in the family, right? Your grandmother, yeah. Cherokee grandmother, and your Cherokee mm-hmm. mother? That's true. My grandmother taught me at a very early age how to pick out the chief and the sub-chief and the tribe of plants, and she's the one that gave me the name Spirit Song. I always said everything has a spirit and a song to sing, and I still believe that. Everything has a spirit. We're all one spirit. We all come from the same spirit same source, just in different form. And your great-grandfather, George, lived to be 100, and he was no, in... No, that's, that's, that's Bull Moose's great-grandfather. Oh, Bull Moose's great-grandfather, uh-huh. yeah, and he, and he was in good health. And, yes, he you know, was. Di- died of natural causes, but up till yes, that he moment, did. he was in great health, huh? Yeah. 
And it really, it really came so from uh, staying healthy on roots and herbs and, yes. and stones, as you say, stones. That's, you know, that's uh-huh. We Meditation. as, you know, Caucasians understand roots and herbs, I think. We, we believe in that. But then stones, that's a whole different concept for us. We don't, I don't it, think. It's more of a focal point than anything. Really? Uh, I had a veterinarian in uh, Dallas that used to use stones for grounding. He would take petrified wood and put it in a bowl of water and leave it for 24 hours and then let a sick animal drink, drink that, water and no el- nothing else, and uh, it would always balance out. They would uh, get well. Really? Uh-huh. Well, I know that uh, I, there's certain stones that I'm attracted to. I have a few on my desk. I, I like crystals. I, I've always been drawn to crystal. That's good. And I've got a few crystals sitting on my desk and, and uh, right around my children. I, for some reason, put them around the pictures of my children and even my grandchildren. Uh-huh, that's good. That's interesting. That's a real plus. That's interesting. I've, 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 I've uh, I don't know, and I've always thought, you know, I'd like to collect more of these, but they're always expensive. <laughs> you know? Well, you need to go to Arkansas and dig some on your own. Oh, really? Yeah, you can go to uh, Murfreesboro. Uh, Arkansas, they have diamonds and they also have crystals. Hmm. And uh, there are a lot of places that have crystals and you can dig for them. Uh, they have the Woodward Ranch out in Alpine, Texas, and you can go out there and dig. They have a particular agate that is found there. Nowhere else in the whole world is beautiful. Called Pom Pom Agate. And uh, they have a store there where they polish things like that, but you can keep whatever you find. Now, you've been involved uh, on TV shows in Texas before. Yes, uh-huh. Down in Lufkin, Nacogdoches? Lufkin, Nacogdoches, and Palestine. Palestine. And I used to lecture at Stephen F. Austin. Oh, okay. On major. Well, this this uh, radio show originates from Tyler, Texas. That's where I had my gallbladder taken out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you remember about Tyler. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The doctor yeah. came in. I really had a high hiatal hernia. This was totally off the book. <laughs> and edited it out, but then he came in and he said, you know, I think your problem was that hernia, not the gallbladder. And I said, all right, where's my gallbladder? And he said, I guess it's in cyberspace. And I said, uh, you know what we do to, I said, I'm Indian. I said, we scout people that make mistakes like that. So the next time he came in, he stuck his head in the door and he said, is it safe to come in? I said, do you still, do you still have your hair? And he said, yeah. I said, well, I guess it's safe. It's safe. Well, you believe in sharing with others, and you believe in the message, we are all one. One spirit, uh-huh. So we are all brothers and sisters here on the earth, and we're only... And you, do we you better feel, get our act together, too. Yeah, we, we don't act like it very often, do we? No. We say that Spider-Woman spun the, spun the web of the universe, and every strand is an individual on earth. Every strand, we're all important to the, the strength of that web to the web of the universe. So the rocks that we are drawn to, there's some connection there. Yes. Why is that? Yeah, I don't know, and you'd have to ask, ask the rock. <laughs> <laughs> the Lakota Indians have, they find a large rock, and they'll look in the rock to see if they can see a picture of a rabbit, an owl, or a snake, or some, some sort of animal or bird. And when they have a problem, they'll meditate, and they'll ask, animal in the rock, what the problem is, and how to solve it, and uh, it seems to work quite well. Hmm. I have no idea why, except right. that it's created by God or one spirit. Right. There's a connection. And are there certain animals that are uh, better healers than others? Mm, I don't really think so. I think they're all great emotional buffers. We survive a lot better because of their presence. And I think we can talk to them, too. I know uh, one time I was looking at my Maine coon cat who's phot- photographed in the uh, book, Dumbo D. He was looking at me with his big brown, big uh, black eyes. And I said, Dumbo D, what are you thinking? And he said, nothing, just as clear as a bell. <laughs> well, I know. And I was taking care of another friend's animals. And uh, she, I went over and... One of her female cats had three little babies. They were by her side, and I said, Oh, my goodness, Star, you had babies. And she said, I don't know where they came from, and I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but they're mine. Huh. That came through loud and clear. Hmm. 
though, was kind of spirit to spirit. Is that what you're saying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's... People have a tendency to talk too much, including myself. And don't listen. And don't listen. When I wake up in the morning, I thank God for the, the ability to live one more day and to use, to use my eyes so that I may really see, to use my ears so that I may really hear, to use my voice for truth, to expand the universe. I think most of us are afraid of silence. Yes, but there's beauty in silence. That's the only way you learn. You have to listen. And then God can speak to you, right? Sure. We just have to listen. That might scare some of us if if we all of a sudden God is speaking to us. He may tell us some things we don't want to hear. Well, I'm sure that's the case. I think that's why a lot of people don't listen. But it's too bad because that's the way you develop and grow. Well, your your book appeals to people searching for natural truth and healing. That's and what choices. you say. Yeah, and choices. Everybody and choices. has a choice. That's right. We all have I, free choice every day. We can decide what to do or what not to do every day, right? Exactly, and the choice is yours. I don't like for people to give up their power to anybody. I like for you to keep your power, develop your own way. I said I got on the wrong pathway by listening listening to the white man's ways. And I turned the glass upside down, started all over again, and went back to the blankets, which is my heritage, which I can't ignore. And I started uh, the old way, and I ended up walking in balance. You have to find your way. That's important, balance. It sure is. What do you mean by balance? Balance is everything. You just have a sense of knowing what's right and what's wrong, and what will work, and what won't. We don't have a name uh, for religion. Religion is a way of life. It's the way you live, day to day. And it's just not going to church on Sunday. It's seven days a week, right? No. A little friend of mine took her son by a church, which I shall not name. And he said, Mother, what is that church? Uh, or what is that building? She said, it's, it's a building where everybody gets together on Sunday and gossips. <laughs> you need to listen. Oh my goodness, that's true. That goes on, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah, that is true. Well, hey, nature. Yes. Nature is my church. It's the only one that is God made. Yes. Well, the building doesn't make a church. That's for sure. Uh uh-uh, uh it sure doesn't. No, I agree with you totally. Well, it's so nice to talk to you about your book nice and your heritage. You. Very, uh, very interesting. Very different. So, uh, tell us how to get your book, Nancy. Where do we get your book? Well, you can get it through uh, Author House, or I have a website. Website uh, Author House did the publishing, did a very good job. And, and what's uh, the what's your website? Well, how do we? I have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that we can. How Indian I am. We can Google uh, Nancy Spirit Song. I'm sure yeah, it will Nancy, come up. Right. It will, yes. or, or you can go through Author House. Go to Author House and, and find it there, and uh-huh. I'm sure it's on all the. Online retailers, you can order the book from them. You can order it through Amazon, uh, right? Barnes and Noble, or, uh, yeah. Barnes and Noble, right? All right. Well, so good to talk to you, Nancy, and congratulations on Thank publishing you. your book. And we uh, look forward to uh, hearing the more Indian. from you, maybe down the road. Oh yeah, I've got uh, four more books to do. Four more. Next one is going to be on trees. Okay. And the next one's going to be on animals that are exceptional that I've known. And the last one, which everybody will probably enjoy more than anything, is my autobiography. Interesting. Because I've led an interesting life. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nancy Spirit Song, for being on Author Talk. Thank you very much. That was Nancy Spirit Song. She is the author of her book, Minerals, The Rainbow Connection. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency, 
Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Deserted Ocean, A Social History of Depletion. And the author is Norman Holy. And Norman joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Norman. Oh, thank you for, for the chat. Well, we appreciate you being here to talk about a very comprehensive book about fishing the oceans. And certainly uh, most of us don't understand the implications. I want to read to you our listeners, your statement of how you would introduce your book to a friend in a sentence or two, you say Deserted Oceans presents a history of human interaction with the North Atlantic Ocean over the past thousand years. It points out how important fish and whaling were to commerce between nations and how these activities spurred settlement of North America by Europeans. Why did you write the book, Norman? Uh, it sounds like an incredible, credible uh, challenge to put together a book about a thousand years of fishing. I, I wrote the book because uh, uh, there are other books out that uh, talk about overfishing in the oceans. Uh, in fact, all of the world's oceans are, are being overfished. I selected the North Atlantic because it was the first... Uh, ocean that was uh, overfished, and it, it provides lessons in terms of how we deal with the other areas that still have a substantial number of fish in them. So I thought it was a good model to choose. I chose to write a thousand years of history because the books that have been written on overfishing really uh, only take... Uh, um, have regard for a fairly brief history of the fishing in the in the North Atlantic. So most people focus on events from, say, 1960 to the present. And indeed, that was a critical era um, because it was the, the era of the factory ships and tremendous overfishing. But what I wanted to point out was that, in fact, uh, if people viewed 1960 as a picture of the pristine ocean, that that was really quite uh, incorrect. So the ocean in 1960 was not really uh, very similar to what the pristine ocean was. So I set about to do a thousand years of history to describe what the ocean was like before it was... Um, substantially fished. And so I did this by getting um, documents from a, uh, well, from the Princeton University Library, which has a great collection of medieval um, uh, books about life in the medieval times. And um, so I did this, and then I also read you know, about 2,000 different articles and so forth. And so I was able to piece together essentially what the pristine ocean looked like because I think when we reflect as a society about what the ocean should be like and how we should manage it, we need to keep in mind what it was in the beginning. Well, you write about when you were five, uh, you were fishing, wading and fishing in the St. Joseph River up in Michigan, and 
you used to catch a lot of fish and it was just crystal clear water and then something happened that changed everything because the farmers started using fertilizer and pesticides and all of a sudden the good fishing days were over right yeah so that's correct so I not only go through the history of fishing over the last thousand years and and talk about the, the earliest events when overfishing occurred. So, for example, the first event of overfishing was in uh, an area between Denmark and Sweden where herring spawned and the Hanseatic League, the big economic power of the time, managed that fishery. So they would go out when the herring were spawning, and for 300 years there would be 7,000 boats out um, collecting herring, and it was a big economic driver for the Hanseatic League. Well, by 1500, uh, that that herring spawn ceased, and uh, it's never come back. So it's the first example of overfishing in in a coastal area. So the, the first overfishing was really in a coastal area. Then, um, so... I go through essentially uh, the five, some examples of overfishing over the last uh, 500 years. So, in fact, many areas were overfished, you know, when uh, we just use sail power. So people think that overfishing only occurred, you know, under modern conditions with modern engines and modern equipment, but that's not the case at all. So. Um, to, to speak about the other point, I, I do discuss also some of the modern threats to the North Atlantic, and that does include um, such things as pollution. So, for example, I, I simply discuss the, the demise of the Chesapeake Bay, which was at one time one of the very critical nurseries for the Atlantic Ocean. So, you, you, most life in the oceans uh, start in shallow areas, in estuaries somewhere, and then migrate into the ocean uh, later. So the Chesapeake was a very critical uh, nursery, but now in the summer it's so polluted that there's a dead zone that, that covers 40% of the Chesapeake Bay. And also now uh, we, we have a dead zone at the mouth of the Mississippi, <clears throat> which is the size of the state of New Jersey. And a lot of that comes from agricultural runoff. It's hard to imagine the Chesapeake Bay or other large uh, bodies along bodies of water along the coastal area of the United States as a nursery. That's a, that's a concept I've never thought about. Wow, that's, that's really intriguing. And then we have other <clears throat> critical nursery areas. So, for example, um, in the Latin American countries, there are a lot of mangroves, and in fact, in South Florida, there are a lot of mangroves. And mangroves are a really very special place because they are nurseries for the oceans. Well, people convert these into to shrimp uh, farms, for example, so they cut the mangroves down. Uh, they can farm the area for maybe five years before it's so contaminated they can't use it anymore. And in the meantime, not only have they you know, destroyed the nursery, but they've also set themselves up to be more vulnerable to hurricanes. So we're, we're doing things that really just are very harmful in many ways. As far as the ocean as a literally uh, a producer of food for the whole world, when you think of the amount of fish that is eaten all over the world, what does that look like for the future as far as the amount of fish that are available to feed the world? Well, what we choose to eat from the ocean is likely to change because, for example, uh, there is a, uh, a guide that's produced by the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and they are considered to be the, the authoritative source in, in terms of recommending um, what seafood to eat. So, for example, they, they say that you shouldn't eat cod from the Atlantic, but from the Pacific it's okay. Um, and, and they go through, they have a whole list. So people can go to montereybay.org 
and they can actually download the the guide. So, um, so the the largest stock remaining in the world is considered by many to to be the Bering Sea Pollock population, and that's what people are uh, getting when they go to McDonald's or any of the fast food restaurants and order a fish sandwich. It's always Pollock. So it used to be fish and chips. The English fish and chips used to mean cod, and uh, but the North Sea was largely uh, overfished by 1930. Um, the uh, cod was taken at the rate of 70% of the adult population every year from about 1910 through 1930, and that was pretty much the end of the cod. So um, cod now um, is not part of fish and chips. So, uh, so as we go through the, for example, salmon, um, there are a lot of issues with farm salmon. Wild salmon come from Alaska, and those populations are being maintained fairly well, except for the king salmon. So the whole future of salmon is, to some extent, in jeopardy. And of course, the supply is is limited. So, so uh, we, in fact, may. Uh, and last year, the the Pollock uh, adult population biomass dropped substantially. So uh, it's just not looking good. So. We may end up uh, going more to a species that is uh, much more abundant uh, in the oceans, and that's that's uh, jellyfish. So uh, jellyfish, oh, jellyfish. Wow, that's that. <laughs> I can't. That's hard to imagine eating jellyfish. <laughs> only a only a certain number of, uh, of a limited number of species are actually edible. But what they do is they catch them and they dry them out, and and actually. Uh, I've eaten uh, jellyfish, uh, and it's you know it's good. It's very good. the The reason for the jellyfish is that as their predators are taken, so the, uh, the turtles, for example, are highly threatened uh, in all the oceans, and uh, sharks and the swordfish and all of these predators on jellyfish are being removed from the oceans. So the jellyfish populations around the, the globe are, are mushrooming. A popular fish that you see often uh, in restaurants uh, is tilapia. Now, what is tilapia? Uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a very good species, actually, to select. So catfish is a very good species to, to buy, and tilapia also because they're both fed soy products. So they're... You mean they're, they're, they're raised on soy products? Yes. And then, um, so one of the problems, for example, in salmon farming, so there are huge salmon uh, farms in eastern Canada, uh, Norway, Scotland, and Chile. And uh, one of the problems with salmon is that they're a carnivorous fish. So they are fed pellets, which are made from... Um, stocks that come from the middle of the food web, so herring, mackerel, capelin, and other species that are really core species for other uh, animals, you know, particularly whales and dolphins, porpoises. So these stocks are, are really vital to maintaining some semblance of balance in, in the oceans. So it takes about three pounds of these pellets to put one pound on the salmon. So what would actually be better would be if we would eat herring rather than salmon, than farmed salmon, that is. How do you see this balance that is so needed? Where are we on this balance in the ocean? <clears throat> at, at this point, the, the main problem is that uh, the, the oceans are not terribly visible, and everybody thinks, well, you know, 70% of the Earth is... The ocean, so therefore it's huge, and you know we certainly can't kill them. But and also because we can't see what's going on on the bottom, where 
trawlers, for example, trawl, bottom trawl a, an area twice the size of 48 states every year, and they've ruined the habitat. But we, aren't, we can't see that, so therefore it really doesn't register. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. That's right. So, so what, I mean, what I would like to, I mean, ideally what I would like to do would be to simply raise public awareness of the, uh, the threat to the oceans and that there would be a, a more concerted effort to, to protect them. So one of the very uh, simple things that we could do as a society would be to set aside more uh, protected areas. Uh, the, the, there are some now. They're easy to manage, and they've been very effective. So we have some years of experience, and we know that they work. So what we need to do is expand these protected areas uh, very substantially. So, for example, off Massachusetts, there's a place called George's Bank. There is a protected area there. George's Bank historically was an incredibly fertile area. It's a shallow area greater than the state of Massachusetts in size uh, in which you have uh, the uh, oxygen-rich Arctic water coming down, meeting the Gulf Stream, and they mix, and you get this turbulent mixing, and it becomes incredibly fertile, and that's where you have lots and lots of fish. We need to set aside more of that and what we should also do is we should require all the fishing vessels to have electronics so that, that they can be followed, uh, so everyone knows, can, can follow their path all the time from the shore. Currently, in order to enforce fish, fishing regulations, um, the, the Coast Guard is supposed to go out and um, check on these fellows, and uh, so but since 9-11, um, the Coast Guard has really put this on the back burner. So they're more concerned with homeland security than they are with uh, enforcing the fishing regulations. So we need to change that to a shore-based monitoring system. Norman, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can actually buy it um, on the Internet, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Author House. You have a website? Yes, it's uh, desertedocean, all one word, dot com. Well, very fascinating. Quite a comprehensive look at our depleted oceans. It's, uh, it's something we should really be concerned about. So thank you, Norman, very much for being on Author Talk. Okay, thank you. That was Norman Holy. He is the author of his book, Deserted Ocean, A Social History of Depletion.